Coming up next, the bookening enters the month of love, March. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booketing. My name is Nathan Albertson. I'm your humble and obedient host. That's Brandon. He's the scholar who's a boy of reading. That's hey. Jake. He's the pastor who's a master of reading. Today we're going to hey. talk about Jane Austen, Sense and Sensibility. Bang, bang. Oh, what's that sound? It's the contextual Texan. It's Brandon. Brandon's going to offer some much needed context on this work. Brandon, what do you have to say about Jane Austen? Oh yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, never heard that before. Wow. Oh, she sounds like a great lady. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Booketing was brought to you by these hey, patrons. Hey, hey, and hey. What? We got to give the people a little bit more than that, don't you think? You think they want more than that? Well, I don't know. Maybe they don't. Just trying to keep what it snappy here. Well, it was very snappy. I'll give you that, Nathan. It was very snappy. Thank you, Jake. I'll take it. Uh, it might have been a little thin, though. You think it was a little thin? Possibly. Possibly a little thin. All right, let's do it one more time. And this time... You guys just need to, I think you guys need to jump in a little bit. And that's what will make it feel thicker. Okay. I can't thicken the soup myself. Mm. You know? You know, it would, it would maybe help if you gave a little space for that, though, this time. Could you just create a little space? Yeah, me? sure. I can, I can create all the space you need. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Booketing. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host, joined by Brandon, joined by Jake. Brandon, hey. what do you think about Jane Austen? What yeah. Interesting. Oh, Brandon, you card. Yeah. <laughs> Jake, what? No, Jake, that is, no, I do not agree with that. Oh, that's gross. Why would you even say that? Oh, have you even read a Bible? Thanks for listening, everybody. Booking Today brought to you by patreon.com forward slash the booking. That sounded about right. That was good. Is that yeah, good? Yeah. Yes. You think we got it? Yeah. yeah the much. Good job. Yeah. Good job? Yeah. Good job you. Okay. Nailed it. You know, I still feel, I still don't feel good about it. Okay, well, why don't I, I made suggestions last time. Why don't you try to figure it out for yourself this time? Brennan, what do you think I should do? I mean, it could be the part where you don't let us talk. Maybe you should let us talk. You know, I've always thought the major problem with our podcast was you guys talking. Oh, well, then I think you fixed it. By that metric. Yeah, by that metric, you fixed it. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it one more time. Okay. We'll see if we can thicken it up, kind of get the right booking brew here going. Okay. Hey, everybody, welcome to the booking. This is Nathan and Patreon. Yay. That was great. You guys like that? Right to the point. Right to the point? Yeah, it's even better. That's the only reason we do this is for those Patreon bucks, people. I think we've recorded three quality episodes so far. This is great. We don't have to come back into the studio for- At least a few weeks. Almost a month. Yeah. You know- We should um, do another one and then knock out a whole month's worth. All right. Should I let you guys talk on this one? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I don't care. Whatever. You know, a little flavor. It's like a little broccoli makes the sugar go down. You know that classic song? Yeah, a little, yeah. little bit of broccoli <laughs> makes the sugar go down. You want you want some asparagus on the plate to kind of make the steak look tasty, mm. or I don't know why they put asparagus on plates, but or because it's delicious. The little leafy things that they use garnish. Asparagus is great. We need a little Jake and Brandon garnish. Mm. Hey everybody, welcome to the booking. This is Nathan, your humble and obedient host. There's Brandon. Hey. There's Jake. Hey. Hey. We're, we're going to talk about. <laughs> hey. Hey. <laughs> Jumping on my. Uh... Jumping on your hay. Jumping on his hay. Hay is for horses. Hey. Hey. Brennan? Yeah. We're reading Sense and Sensibility. 
True or false? We are reading it. That is true. And you are going to provide some much-needed context on this work. That is true. In a famous segment of the bookings called The Contextual Texan. That's right. Wherein you let out a hail and hearty. Yeehaw! And you do that because you are the contextual Texan. You yes. are a man from Texas. You provide much-needed context on the work in question because you are knowledgeable about literature due to the education that you received yes. and the hard work that you put into said education and your natural facilities with mental things Yes, and communication using words. Yes. So tell us everything we need to know about Jane Austen for the fifth time, Brandon. For the fifth time. I guess in case anyone is joining us <clears throat> on the podcast today for the first time, they should know we have done four previous Jane Austen, books. Not, not episodes, but books. And so this is- That the means four separate times we've hit context. So we should probably let Brandon off the hook, right? And just- Nope. People are coming in. We get new listeners every time we drop a new episode or hit a new book. And mm -hmm. Sense and Sensibility seems like one of those books that people might be coming to us for the first time to hear about. Right. And those people probably loved our intro and- Yeah, they probably definitely, probably definitely did not turn it off by now. Definitely stuck around for that. New listeners are here in droves and they want to hear Brandon provide some much needed context on sensibility and the works of Miss Jane Austen. So just a quick bio of her, because as people who have listened to most of our Jane Austen episodes know, there's not a lot of biography there. She lived a pretty straightforward, simple life. She was born in 1775, died in 1817, which puts her squarely, which is one of my favorite facts about her, puts her squarely during the Romantic period of English literature. And she's about as far from a Romantic figure as you can possibly find. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Her father was a rector, which basically mean, meant he was a pastor, but the way it would work is these landed gentries, well... Should we talk about British society first? Yeah. Do we want to get the terms out of the way? Yeah. Because I figured if we're going to say landed gentry, don't we kind of need to know what that it's means? It's nice to know what things mean when you say them. Yeah, it is nice to know what things mean when you say them. So let's just start with a little bit of British society at the time, because that'll help you kind of understand who Jane Austen was, the way she fit into it. And then we can talk more about the literary history behind her at the tail end of this and then call it a day. Sounds great. Sounds great. Yeah. That gives us a direction to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. <clears throat> so if people have ever seen any Jane Austen movie- Sorry, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> Let me interrupt. <laughs> yeah. I just realized we never addressed something. What? Which is the fact that it is March, right? It now. is March. We are a month late Ooh. to Jane Austen. And folks, we are going to catch up. We are not just going to make this. This is indeed the year of Tolkien, but it is not going to be the year of only Tolkien. Only Tolkien. You're going to get plenty of other things. And it's going to be like our regular schedule with Tolkien mixed in on the off things you'll, you'll still get plenty of Tolkien but you'll also get plenty of other things and we are going to try and catch up uh, we're always kind of loose with our schedule but we will try and do what we can to catch up to the schedule in any case the next couple of weeks are definitely Jane Austen and then we'll be into ugh, Johnny Tremaine is that what comes next I think so Moon and Sixpence whatever comes after Jane Austen I think it's Johnny Tremaine and, and Trumpet of the Swan Trumpet of the Swan T of the S so that's where we're that's where we are schedule wise. Where Brandon is is at the beginning of a lovely context section that I've interrupted, for which I apologize. Take it back away, Brandon. You were about to define British society. Yes, um, and this is important just because it establishes the groundwork for understanding how her novels are set up, and also just who she was and her family background. 
with British society, you had the noble class, and then you had the working class. And then you also had kind of the in-between class, which would be the, um, at her time, the rising merchant class. The noble class, which you don't see a whole lot of in Jane Austen novels, would have been the families who had a long history with patronage from the crown. And so they had been given some sort of title from the crown. And the Darcys would have been one of these families. But especially, what was his aunt's name? Oh, Darcy's aunt? Yeah. The bad guy? The bad guy. She would have been one of the most prominent examples you would have seen of this. You then also had beneath the people that actually had like the noble titles, you would have had the landed gentry, people who had received property or land either due to patronage from another noble or just because of wealth and acquiring wealth. This would have been like Bingley and his family. And then under them, you would have had kind of the healthy middle class. And so these these families like Darcy's, they would have owned these manor houses that would have been on these large estates. And sometimes it would actually contain villages and stuff within the estates that they would also have the care of. Also their own little parishes, meaning churches that belong to these estates as well. And so, for example, Collins would have been one of these figures who would have been, a, a re- they would have been called re- a rectors, but a pastor of one of these parishes. And he would have belonged to the estate, the house, and he would have given his sermons in the parish chapel and the people that were in this community, but also the people in the great house would have all come and uh, worship together at this little parish chapel. Um, and you see this in many of her novels. We saw it in Mansfield Park, right? Mm-hmm. And we also saw it in Pride and Prejudice. But then you would have also had the people who are kind of like the landed gentry, but not quite as high, high class. And they would have been more like the country gentry. And that would have been similar to the Bennett home and Pride and Prejudice. And then beneath them, of course, would be the working class. Life was changing. Time was changing. The economy of Britain was changing with like the East India Trading Company and the growth of the colonial empire. And so you also had a swiftly rising merchant class and also admiral class. And so you see some of that back and forth and that changing scene in many of Jane Austen's novels as well. One other thing to know about British society at the time is that they were an island, a big island, Mm -hmm. but they had become known as having one of the great navies and one of the great armies of the world. And so often the sailors and the soldiers would be in the coastal regions like Bath and areas like that have a lot of interaction with the locals. And so you see a lot of this in Jane Austen novels as well, where famously Mr. Wickham Mm-hmm. is one of these characters. But Jane Austen would have had this sort of experience because she spent some of her life in the early 1800s in Bath with her father after he decided to leave his rectorship at Steventon fairly quickly and uh, suddenly. That's kind of the cultural background of Britain as far as, and so I, I guess the point to take away from that is that it was very class structured, that you had the noble class with their titles patronage from the crown that they carried way, way back, deep roots, ancestry. And so they could marry. It's very much like- The dad and persuasion. Dad and persuasion are also, I was thinking of uh, wizards only marrying other wizards in Harry ah, Potter, yes. that sort of thing. <laughs> J.K. Rowling, yeah. right. Rowling stole that idea directly from the fact that she's a Brit and knows all about it, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. but still. And so the royals could marry the other royals, aka the nobles could marry the other nobles. And, you know, they would inherit each other's houses, inherit each other's wealth. And it wasn't often that you would stretch yourself and go outside of your circle, which is why it's such a big deal for Darcy to then condescend himself to Elizabeth Bennet and marry her, Mm -hmm. right? 
because she's from, she's still from an upper class family, but not upper class in the sense that Darcy's upper class. He's in, he's in a different world than she is. And so for her to be able to reach out of that world into his world would have been a radical, scandalous sort of thing, mm-hmm. as Jane Austen shows us. But it wasn't an impossible thing either, because society was changing, it was adapting. And so things that might have been impossible in the Middle Ages weren't so impossible anymore, because the world was a changing place. Those sort of social structures, they re- really were codified. And you see it all over Jane Austen's novels um, with Emma, right? One of the central jokes of that is her friend aspiring to possibly marry Mr. Knightley Mm -hmm. when they're not even close to being in the same circle. And so Mr. Knightley in his kindness understands the awkwardness of the situation and doesn't make a buffoon of her. But right. So part of Emma's maturation is learning that, yeah, probably not that great of an idea to try and jump like that. Yeah. And so it was, while it was possible to kind of go from one sphere that was right next to your sphere up to the other one, it wasn't really possible to go. Like you want to have the rags to riches sort of story you would have in America. That's just wasn't something that would, um, you could have the rag to riches merchant, but Mm -hmm. you would never have the rags to riches. Here you are suddenly a noble man without having that deep lineage and bloodline. Right at the beginning of the industrial revolution and stuff like that. And so the things that would characterize a Dickens novel, not really going to characterize a Jane Austen novel because life in the countryside with these uh, country houses was about as simple as Jane Austen presents it. And so you would often have these estates where the father would make his business either attending to the estate, or maybe he would be a rector at one of the local parishes or an inherited money. Or if he, if he didn't own one of the country houses, he could have been one of the more landed gentry and had one of the big manor houses. But um, that would be what the countryside of England at the time would look like, especially down in Steventon where um, Jane Austen grew up. And so it would have been very simple. These little small communities, everybody would have known each other. You would have had the balls that everybody would have gone to at these houses. You would have been visiting each other's homes, paying visits to one another, going out and walking along the countryside roads together down the hedges and Kind of an idyllic little lifestyle that would have been there and one that seems uh, fairly nice to us today, mm-hmm. but other, uh, kind of another worldly feel to it as well. But um, that was the life that she grew up in. That the, There really were communities like that all over Britain at the time, because like I said, we, you were still kind of in between the late Elizabethan, late Jacobean period, sending, going towards what would become industrialized Victorian England, but you weren't quite there yet. And she also wasn't in the city. She was a country girl. Anyway, so that's the cultural social background. Kind of went on a little longer than I thought I was going to, but it's interesting because it helps you understand both the world that Jane Austen would adapt into her novels. Because one of the things that most people notice about Jane Austen is that her, and now that we're five years into her and we've read most of her works now, her world is surprisingly small but also surprisingly big. In other words, the world that, the setting of the, her world is very small. Her purview. But yeah. the psychological world that she presents to us is, is enormous. And so it, it's similar in many ways, though she's very different to Flannery O'Connor, who her purview was very small. You said the word purview. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet she offers a richer world than that, mm-hmm. except Jane Austen did it much better than right. Flannery and with much more 
depth of characterization than Flannery O'Connor did. The part where Darcy takes those kids into the woods and shoots them. <laughs> that is, it's like a classic scene. Pretty great, man. Yeah. Shows the darkness of the human spirit. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, we like Flannery O'Connor. We do. I if love this. Is your first episode? I like Flannery O'Connor. I almost wrote a dissertation about her. Mm-hmm. Then I changed what my dissertation was going to be about, and it's no longer on her. But anyways, back to Jane Austen. Back to Jane Austen. So her father was a rector, and he wasn't the highest class rector in the sense that he had a lot of money. They had a fairly modest income growing up, but they weren't poor. They would have been along the lines of the Bennett family. Her mother actually did come from a higher class family called the Lays, um, where her father was like um, an, a rector at Also's College in Oxford. And so... Her mother had more of this high-class upbringing, but she, her name was Cassandra. She met George Austin, her father, and they fell in love and married. And so he became the rector at Steventon, which were, is where she would grow up. And you can find pictures of it, what it would have been like. It's very, like I said, idyllic with the trees surrounding it, little cottage house here, the Steventon Parsonage, a small little two-storied house, trees surrounding it, little walkway up there, little bench around the trees would have been like you would have imagined uh, the Bennett home to have been. And um, I keep going back to the Bennetts because it's pretty commonly thought that Jane Austen based the Bennett family on her own family, or at least to some extent, not maybe Mrs. Bennett on her mother, but at least there was some overtones there. Also the Sense and Sensibility family, a little bit like her family after her father died. Her education would have been mostly at home, but people who knew her. And so there are several sources. Last year, I read the autobiography that her nephew wrote on her called A Memoir of James Austin, which is fairly good. It was written by uh, James Edward Austin Lay. And then there are some other bios. And we also, there's some letters that she had that she had written to her sister. Most of those letters have been burned because her sister, Cassandra, named after her mother, decided to burn them all because she thought that the world didn't need to read her sister's personal thoughts, which, you know, fair enough. So after what some assume were like 5,000 letters, maybe only 160 survive. And so we really don't know that there's not a whole lot to say about Jane Austen. You know, there's, she grew up in this little Steve, in this little country home. She would have met all these people through the great house that was near them. And also just in the community they grew up in, in Steventon, her father being the parson and would, or being in the parsonage would have also had a lot of people in his house. Most people say they had a happy home. It was open and friendly and lively. The girls would have read a lot. And she also, at a fairly young age, this would have put her around 12, started writing some juvenilia. So some of it would have, most, her earliest works were all like parodies, comedies in that sense. They wrote some plays together, put on some plays and productions, which was pretty interesting. If you, if anybody remembers Mansfield Park mm-hmm. and what takes place in that novel with the theatrical productions there, but she would have had those experiences that then would have provided the context and background to everything she wrote about. And so everything she draws from in all of her novels comes directly from her own experience as as almost always happens with writers that are worth their salt. They don't try to stretch themselves outside the world they know. And instead they find a way to make the world they know the proper and only stage that they need. They don't need anything else. She, she was able to take her little Steventon home the little parsonage there and turned it into a stage that Victor Hugo could have never imagined. So fair. Who is it? Is it uh it's Robert Louis Stevenson, isn't it? That wrote her like a fanboy letter saying yeah. you do things in your little purview that I can't begin to touch with all my 
treasure islands and yeah. pirates and the broad scope of what I'm doing. That's what we keep trying to encourage people and especially young men to see is that there's a lot more to a Jane Austen novel than just a love story. There are love stories in her novels, but that's mm. not all there is. In a Jane Austen novel, you have a young lady who, despite her setting that most feminists kick against and say was oppressive and like Virginia Woolf, you know, she needed a room of her own. Mm -hmm. And then you have um, the two, Sandra Gubar, or Gubar here at um, IU, who famously wrote her Mad Woman in the Attic and made her career off of people like Jane Austen saying, well, you know, she writing about her oppression and all this stuff mm -hmm. and how we need to reread Jane Austen's Texas feminist manifestos and all these things. There's just no merit to those arguments because there's no evidence that there's any truth to them and why. Oh uh, yeah. Anyways, and we can come back to that later, but still what all the evidence points towards is that she was fairly happy at home. She read a lot. She was observant and she put her powers of observation to storytelling from a young age. And then Tune, uh, tuned her craft into becoming the very discerning, witty, stylish novelist that she became as a young woman. And so how she did it was, well, I guess we don't really know all the details of how she did it because we don't know her biography completely. But we do know that she didn't go off and make her name in the world by going to Oxford or writing letters about complaining about her father, how her father was keeping her at home and all these things. She used the world that she was in and seemed fairly content in that world. Um, we have evidence from her nephew and other people that she was a happy lady, that her nieces and nephews loved her. They loved to go see Aunt Jane um, and that she found ways to work her writing life into the world she was in and make these novels that were wonderful while still being a good daughter after her father died, a good help to her mother. Yeah. You want to add anything to that? Uh, the only thing I would add is that she, while she does seem kind and pious and all those things, if you read her letters, she does have a very acerbic sense of humor, which you would expect nothing less from. Yeah, she could observe. And um, sometimes she would allow those observations to be fairly biting. Especially in her younger letters. You, yeah. You feel, I mean, it's it's easy. It's really easy to read into these things and figure out what you want Jane Austen to be and make her into that. But you do feel like when you read her really young letters, she's kind of mean spirited. And then there's not a lot of stuff like that in her, what we have of her later letters. But again, like Brandon was saying, we have a very small sample size. So, well, this is interesting because actually I had a very good student of mine the other day come up and she asked me because she was thinking about writing some fiction. And she asked me like, what are the things that I would advise a young writer not to like what are the mistakes that i often see young writers do mm -hmm. one of my points i was trying to make to her i don't know if i was very clear about it was trying to be more discerning and wiser than you are mm. being wiser and more discerning than your experience gives you credit for you know or gives you the freedom to be right and so uh, often what that'll lead a young writer into is being overly sarcastic overly biting like you see jane austen in her younger juvenilia mm -hmm. right and so she would eventually mature out of that, mm -hmm. as most people do, when they realize, oh, actually, I'm about as foolish and as everyone else. And then so eventually, that would lead her into being able to write a Pride and Prejudice, where she's pretty much just making fun of herself the whole book. Right? Yeah. But she had to go through that other stage where she was observing other people and discerning what's bad about them before, then, you know, finally it would come back and 
allow her to then observe herself. And then you see it go the other direction too, like when they become, young writers can become very self-righteous or think that they have a cause, like then they're going to imbue their writing with that cause. And that's somehow going to make their writing really good. And so like everything that would become good about Ray Bradbury is spoiled in Fahrenheit 451 because, (laughs) I mean, I think it explains it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because he's so taken up by this idea of this one allegory that he's going to try to get across to you. Right. That it's kind of sloppily done. Mm -hmm. And you wonder like, okay, what could mature Bradbury have done with that if he had gone back and rewritten it? Yeah. Right. Well, I found a lot of sympathy for that because I I was that guy at a certain point in my life. And it's really hard, especially if you've got a little bit of a knack for it or some talent. It's like when you're at that point where you're straining against your lack of experience and you'd really like to have something to say, but you actually don't. You just simply haven't lived and haven't suffered enough. It's difficult. The only solution for it is to live more life. I mean, I guess the one the piece of advice I'd give to that kid is go get a job, do something, like make something of yourself. It will only help your writing. The one thing that actually won't help your writing is if the only thing you do is keep away from people and read lots of books. Yeah. And this, I don't have that worry for this particular student. No, no. But that's a recipe for just sounding like whoever your favorite person is. I have had those sorts of students and I do. And usually what that kind of person will look like is they'll sit there with a teacher while the teacher's trying to give them advice in a writing class and they'll just pretend like they already knew it. And that there are things that they knew that, that they already know somehow that, mm-hmm. you know, if only you saw their real talent, if you just saw the things that's misunderstood about them, that you would, you know, you would see them for who they really are, but you're just one of the other people. It's like a holding Caulfield, you know, yeah. that sort of mentality. You're just a phony. Get off my back. Who are you to even tell me how to be a better writer? Holden was If actually. you were so great, you wouldn't be here teaching me. You'd be out doing the great things that I'm going to do someday. Yeah. But inevitably, that person's writing reads like a pastiche of whatever they like because they haven't actually lived any life. So when they try to write, say, you know, a sad scene, they write a sad scene that they've seen in a movie or something like that because they don't have any experience to draw on. And also, you know, we've talked a lot. This is getting off on a side trail, but anyways. We've talked a lot on the bookending about how the idea of the romantic genius that came up is just this fairy tale that's not actually uh, completely true. I mean, a picture of what genius is. Yes, there's such a thing as brilliant talent that sets somebody apart like that, but it's also the hard work and that sets that person apart. And so, but that idea of the sad romantic genius off on the cliff composing these great works for humanity and is misunderstood in its time. It's just not, it's not usually true, mm. right? I was talking about that with my students today. Because one of them that I have concerns about, because they were like, well, you know, what does happen if you just think you're misunderstood? Mm-hmm. And like, and you know, and you think that maybe posterity will one day finally understand you. And I'm like, well, you know, the irony behind that is most of the people that we think of as misunderstood, most of those authors, they were published and made a lot of money on their publications during their life. Yeah. That it's just, it's kind of a misconception that that's not actually really true in the majority of the case. Yeah. Cases, it was a persona they put on. Mm. But really, in the end, they were the successfully really great, published. Yeah, the really great misunderstood artists out there, uh, you never heard of because... They were misunderstood. They were misunderstood. And yeah. so you never got access. Nobody yeah. ever made their work available. Yeah, but like the ones we think of as the misunderstood, mm. the, like the J.D. Salingers or the... 
um, Henry James Miller Joyce's or, James or the Henry, they, the, the guy, those guys were millionaires because of their works. Well, a lot of those guys so, were able to brand, you know, somebody like yeah. Henry Miller made his name on being an outsider and someone that talked about so- yeah. societal taboos and stuff like that. It's like, it's, I don't want to say it's all an act, but I kind of want to say it's all an act. A large part of it's an act and Jane Austen was not a part of that act, you know? And so this kind of, so we'll get back to the end of her life in a minute, mm. because this actually is a, a really good segue into the people who were doing this at the same time that she was alive. And this is what I think, it always blows my mind to remember this, but she was alive and she was writing these novels, these simple country stories on the face, these simple romance stories that were actually deep and rich, like a Shakespearean play where each character is fully developed and you can find yourself in every character and you can see you know, bits of yourself and Mr. Bennett, bits of yourself and Darcy and you cringe and you're like, oh, but it's all, you know, she knows me, she sees me, right? And how is she doing this? At the same time she was writing, you had the um, free love era of its day with the romantics all living out at, like, uh, at the lake together. Geneva, is it Lake Geneva? Yeah, or something. Yeah, one of those lakes together yeah. in, in Britain, you know, with uh, Wordsworth and Blake had paved the path for these kids and they had, all decided to then go and um, just have this free love experience with one another and just really write for the passion of art. You know, let's just put all our passion in and our emotions in and just be raw and real with people, man. And you would get the sort of horrid lives that would come out of that. So you had um, Pierce, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron mm-hmm. of all people. You had Mary Shelley. And all these people were just miserable with one another. While they were trying to live the sort of life that people think that Jane Austen should have lived. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mary Shelley's a case study. You can go back and listen to our episode on her. She lived the life because of her mother, Mary Wollstonecroft. She lived the life that people think that Jane Austen wished she could have lived. Right. And she was miserable. She had a miserable life. The Bronte sisters were all miserable, mm-hmm. you know, but they really wrote some deep stuff, man, because they knew how to add some passion and emotion to their work. And because of the way that we can get sometimes, we, we confuse passion and emotion for depth. Maybe one of the characters in this book made the, made the same mistake. Yeah. It's almost like Jane Austen had the number of that kind of <laughs> yeah. person. Very good. Yeah. That's kind of where I was headed, guys. But good. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I read no. mind. Good. I'm glad that it was all leading there. I tell, uh-huh. I tell students that if you're going to build an essay, it has to get to the next, the next paragraph has to inevitably follow mm-hmm. the one that came before it. Right. And so if you're going to build you're an argument. You're such a good teacher. Yeah. If only I could do and not just teach Nathan and Jake, you know. If only you could do and not just teach Nathan and Jake. Yeah. I was saying Nathan and Jake. like Comma guys, Nathan and Jake? Comma or? Nathan and Jake. Friends. Right. Well, that's also something I've been realizing or thinking about lately is uh, the way the American educational system works is that we all just think that teaching is something that people, like we have the people, the fact that we have people who think that teachers are the ones who just couldn't do, so now they just teach, yep. means that we completely misunderstand what teaching is and the importance of teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we get into this idea that teaching is this inferior thing, and so then we have bad teachers, and then we wonder why we have bad Self-fulfilling teachers. self prophecy, yeah. Yep. Teaching is- Some of the best doers are terrible teachers. Yeah. And some of the best doers are also great teachers. I think it's also true that some of the worst doers are well. For example, good teachers. I hear actually. that, like I've heard Seamus Heaney speak, and I've heard that he was an amazing professor as well. As well, mm-hmm. he was I'm just sure he was, yeah, because he had that rich Irish voice. I mean, who wouldn't want to be taught by Seamus Heaney? Right. <laughs> but still, 
C.S. Lewis, you know, he mm. could write. People said his classes were some of the greatest at the university as well. I imagine they were. So, I mean, it's just, that's too simple of a categorization. And it means that people then don't look for actual talent when it comes to their teachers. Mm. And that's a shame mm-hmm. because it leads to all sorts of problems. What was I talking about? The romantics? Yeah. By the way, Brennan, if I may make a rare correction. Yeah. It was not a lake in Britain. I don't want anyone to give us one star and unsubscribe. It was Lake in Switzerland. That's right. It was yeah. Lake Geneva. You were right. It was Lake Geneva. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. I, I was right. Good. I looked it up just to confirm it. Yeah. And just to make you eat crow. No, <laughs> Brandon says a million facts and he's the best. And he knows a lot more about literature than I do. Oh, it was Wordsworth who didn't. It was a lake in Britain for Wordsworth. Oh, okay. But it wasn't Shelley and... But that's not or, the word place. Yeah, yeah you, said, you said Shelley and... Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. I confused it actually. No, no, I got confused. I was linking them all together. The famous romantic lake is yeah. Lake Geneva. Lake Geneva in Switzerland is where they all went. Right. But there was the Lake District where Wordsworth lived. Right. Okay. Then I just was conflating everything. Right. Once I was making the world much more simpler than it actually was at the time, Nathan. Right. I shouldn't be doing this. One star. So a needle pulling thread. Yeah, yeah. So a needle pulling thread. Yay. First of 2020. That gets us somewhere. Oh, it, oh boy, does it. So the romantics, Lake Geneva, you corrected me, I cried. Right. We cut that part out. Yeah. We didn't want people to think that bad of you. Somebody gave us one star. Just because we even thought about saying something wrong. You know what, Brandon? Actually, what you gave us one star yourself. The yeah. star of the bookening. Oh, Nathan, that's so sweet. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so this is interesting to see because... I think with Jane Austen, she's a, she's a good case study for the way that our cultural misunderstandings just get deeply imbued into our psyche, however you want to put it. In mm. other words, the way we think about genius, the way we think about art, the way we think about the artistic life that would even come. I mean, like, what's that recent Coen Brother movies that was made about that Dylan-esque figure? Oh, uh, Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Llewellyn Davis. Yeah. So even guys like Bob Dylan, you know, who have legitimate talent, Mm. they still have this misconception that they have to be, I mean, it's all, most of it's performance with Dylan, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have him going off and he's acting like Dylan and he's acting like the romantics would act, right? Right. A semi-mythic figure. Because he thinks he needs to, because there's that, that's the way the artist lives, man, right? Mm -hmm. But then you have someone who's just living a very simple, boring life like Kazuo Ishiguro who's writing novels that Bob Dylan wishes he could write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Bold words. <laughs> I mean, with skill that deserves a Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bold words again. <laughs> so I love Dylan too, people, right? I just don't know if... if he deserved the Nobel Prize uh, for literature? Yeah, his, his, he was writing songs. He, he deserved to be remembered in the whatever halls of fame. Give him all the Grammys. And, yeah. Agreed. But he wasn't, he's, he wasn't writing poetry mm. and that's its own thing. So I'm not trying to be snobbish or anything about with saying that, but, and I really am getting off into the weeds. So Jane Austen, Romantic Yeah. Era. And so, but those things become deeply imbued. And so, and we have these misconceptions. And so then we get up to modern day scholarship with everything that's happened with Marxism and post-colonialism and feminism. And we just get baffled and can't imagine how a young girl growing up in a house, a parsonage in Steventon could have possibly grown up to be Jane Austen, mm. right? Come from a happy home with a happy father and a, from all we can tell, a happy mother, happy sisters, happy brothers, 
She didn't seem like she had some tortured psyche. She had a brief little love affair that we can, we think with Tom LaFroy, very similar to what probably would have happened between Elizabeth and Wickham, right? She had the disappointment of having to leave Steventon when her father took her to Bath and it was kind of the lost period of her life. So she had her disappointments just like everybody does. Then her father died fairly, fairly suddenly and then she was taken under her brother's uh, patronage and then that kind of faded away even later in life, which probably provided some of the influences for the novel we're about to read, right? Mm-hmm. She had all these things. She had her disappointments, but nothing so severe as to like produce the genius, like, you know, the James Joyce pining to be away from Dublin because it's so petty and small, right? Surely she was sitting there in her home pining to be away from Steventon, right? She had to be. And yet there's no evidence that that's who she was. Well, but, and when, by the way, the evidence that people think about it that way is you can find novels written about Jane Austen's life, biographical films, things like this, and inevitably they fill in the gaps with some kind of romantic nonsense, Yeah, you know, with some great pain or great driving artistic impulse or like they can't accept that she was just this chick that lived a normal life and happened to be really talented yeah. and observant. There has to be a thing. There has to be a key. Yeah. So it's like all these new, so there was that new retelling of five women. Little women. Little, Little women. women. Yeah. yeah. That modernized it all and made it real feminist mm-hmm. and edgy for today's because we think that art can only be worthwhile if we can reinterpret it through the liberal New Yorker artist lens. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only lens that matters. And like, and so they must they had they think therefore that their very limited view of life must be the way that every legitimate artist throughout history must have seen the world. So mm-hmm. Shakespeare had to have seen the world that way. Jane Austen had to have seen the world. I call that way. cultural appropriation. It is cultural appropriation, and it's also amen. And it's not. And it's not. Really, it doesn't have to even be anachronistic cultural appropriation because there are Jane Austens alive today. There are just like there were wild, crazy feminists alive in Austin. Exactly, yeah. Mary Wolf, Wolf and how do you say Wollstonecraft? Yeah, one there of, are one women one. who are bright and perceptive mm-hmm. and very intelligent, living very happy, quiet lives with their husbands and their families at home, mm-hmm. and they have no time for the feminists telling them that they need to be disappointed with their life. And there are those women who are quietly doing brilliant things. I want to spin a narrative that all the creative people in the world share all of my political and cultural sins and biases. So I'm going to recast everyone as being made in my own image. Yeah. That is the definition of the kind of cultural appropriation that the left accuses everybody else of, but what they do to every artist that's ever Mm -hmm. lived. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if it appropriates for them the right sort of intelligentsia, because all it is is intelligentsia. They're, they're the intelligentsia. They're right. going to explain the world. And I mean, I actually had a professor who just outright said this, that in Marxist the, in Marxist theology, mm-hmm. right, fine, yeah, in Marxist theology, yeah. the way they see the world is that inevitably you're going to have the governing class and you're going to then also inevitably have the ideologues who create the ideologies for people. And that will be the university professors. Mm-hmm. They just outright said that. And so the ruling class has to be, it's kind of like the philosopher king mentality with Plato, that you may as well make the smartest man in the room the guy who rules everybody. Mm. But except when the smartest man in the room is so narcissistic that he then thinks that every smartest man who ever has ever lived has to be exactly like him, you have a problem. Yep. And so you get people like misappropriating Jane Austen like this. Mm-hmm. And there's absolutely no evidence without having to really read. It's like what happens with Shakespeare, right? Oh, he must have been a homosexual because he wrote those sonnets, guys. Mm-hmm. 
Or he must have been really miserable because he didn't give his, or he must not have existed because a poor man like that couldn't have been that smart. Right. right? And, well, and so once he, again, I'm sure I say this every year, but read Virginia Woolf's bitter little essay on Jane Austen, where she complains about how Jane Austen died when she was 42, whereas her brother, the Admiral, lived to be 80. Yeah. And it's just sour grapes feminism. Like, how dare Jane Austen's brother live longer than her? I mean, that's pretty much what she says. And then proceeds to speculate about the four or six or whatever it is novels that Jane Austen would have written yeah. based on how percept- or, uh, her perception of how persuasion felt different from the ones that had come before. And then argues from that. So it's like pure, it's pure wish fantasy. It's wish fulfillment. fulfillment. Yeah, that's yeah. all it is. And it's a famously lauded essay on John, or John, John Williams, on the great composer, John Williams. Jane Austen also was John Williams. Yeah. Thanks, Brain. Good job. <laughs> I will try and get you some more sleep, but you cannot do that to me on the bookening, okay? Okay, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys know that my brain is fat, Albert? <laughs> It explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Give me another donut. <laughs> no. Okay. I, I got to process those things, man. <laughs> All right, Brain. I'm going to try and get Brandon back on track. You, good luck there. <laughs> hey, Fatso, keep talking. All right, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> good job, Brain. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about? Yeah, we're, we're, folks, disclaimer. Brandon. Thin as a rail, Am- emaciated, looks like the victim of a wasting disease. Yeah, let's go the opposite direction now. <laughs> That's great, Nathan. <laughs> what were we talking about? Uh, oh, Cultural Virginia Wolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, part of me thinks also I'm that sorry I called you fatso. It's fine. That crossed the line even for us. Fatso? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it made me feel bad for the first time. Really? <laughs> uh, we don't say true things about each other. It just, it just felt crossing so, lines. It just felt so bald-faced. <laughs> like, usually I have something a little more clever. <laughs> Maybe just not fatso. much. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Brendan's normal, okay? He's neither thin nor fat. He's just, he's just Brandon. He's a nice. He's Goldilocks. He's, he's just right. Yeah, he's nice. He's just right. That's right. If he was a porridge, he'd be. We'd want to eat him. If he was... <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, now this is just getting weird again, Nathan. Okay. Uh, so part of me thinks that people like Virginia Woolf and some of these other writers, they try to appropriate Jane Austen because if they can't write as well as she can from their worldview and she actually lived in this radically different conservative sort of worldview mm-hmm. and wrote novels that were like 20 times better than they could ever write. And that has to be disconcerting for them Yeah, because Virginia Woolf had this mentality. She was the free woman. She was the great thinker. And yet she wrote garbage like Mrs. Dalloway <laughs> 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 to the lighthouse. No one has ever legitimately enjoyed either of those books. <laughs> Preach it. I'm, I'm. <laughs> I mean, just like I had this guy in grad school that tried to convince me that he actually liked Ulysses. Mm. And so he had a reading group and we were all sitting there and some person, you know, this poor guy who was like a medieval scholar in the department, he was being honest. He's like, you guys, there's no way you actually like this, right? You're just pretending because it makes you feel smart, right? 
but you don't really like this, right? It's just like a mirror you're holding up so you can look at yourself. I remember that argument. It was like, that made this other guy so mad. Mm-hmm. But I was like, yeah, he's kind of right, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's this kind of, it's just a mirror that you hold up to yourself so you can see, oh, look how smart I am. I'm reading to the lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> Do I understand a word of it? Probably not. <laughs> Did Virginia Woolf understand a word of it when she wrote it? Probably not. Anyways. Is that going a little bit too far? <laughs> uh, no, no. I think you went precisely as far <laughs> as you meant to. Yeah. So, um, just like a wizard, just, just like, like wizard. we said before. That's yep. right. And yes, if it even so, if that was even part of this. And before we before <laughs> yeah. we get some person on reviewing us saying, "Well, they don't even they, uh, has he even read to the lighthouse? It's really not that obscure. It's really not that difficult to understand." I was being a little bit hyperbolic, people. Yeah. My point was still true. Virginia Woolf had some talent. But she had some. <laughs> I mean I mean she she could she could yeah. put a sentence together. I'll say that much for her. And so had James Joyce, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the world's full of people who can put sentences together. Yeah. That, that essay about Jane Austen. Have anything to say. That, that essay about Jane Austen is offensively bad. That is true. There are a lot of people and so that's where and that's where this idea of genius just gets really ridiculous. Like, so the most modern example we've had of this was with David Foster Wallace. Mm. Like, I have tried many times to read Infinite Jest, and I just don't like it. And I'm to this point in my life where I've read a lot of things that are good, and I don't feel the need to make myself like something just because a lot of really smart people have told me that it must be really good. And a lot, a lot of the time, this, they'll take very obscure things, and they'll say that about those obscure things because they have the insecurity to think that they need to understand it. And if they don't, then they at least need to pretend they understand it because somebody else might understand it and they can't be less than that person. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. And so that's what that Ulysses reading group just became where all these people were kind of nervously looking at each other like, do you understand this? Oh, you think you understand it? So yeah, I understand it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been in those groups. And so... Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. As Jane Austen famously said. Jane Austen, your most famous quote. Darcy, no nightly, looks at Emma and he says, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Sit down. Be humble. Yeah. <laughs> Badly done. <laughs> so some, so we're somewhere in the middle of her life right now. <laughs> yeah, she she didn't get married and she died. We haven't there. even talked See, about the I fact. I can do that, context too. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even talked about the fact that she became a writer. <laughs> 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 but yeah, people. Sometime within that period, like as early as nine, uh, as early as her, as 12, she was writing these juvenilia, but she began to write these stories that she would then compile into um, these books that would, you know, uh, make her famous. And so (laughs) her first one. (laughs) No, they did? Yeah. Her first one was. Eleanor and. Yeah. Eleanor and Mary. Rigby. Yeah. (laughs) Eleanor and Rigby. That's right. After fi- after she finished Lady Susan. Oh, yeah. Boo. But she started working on Eleanor and Mar- Mary, and it was its first epistolary. Mm-hmm. But uh, it would slowly become, drum roll, Sense and... Prejudice? Sense and Prejudice, that's right. Mm-hmm. Sense and Prejudice. Um, which she would then separate into two different novels, Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how Pride and Prejudice got got, got done. I'm sorry, Brandon. Was that not how it worked? drop facts on you but oh, yeah how did it happen then? she took pride and prejudice with zombies she cut out all the good parts and Left, uh, yeah got rid of all the zombies yeah because she's like this is a little bit too avant-garde for my pre-victorian audience mm-hmm. she used all those words i'd too. really like <laughs> yeah. i'd really like to do this 
but I can't because I'm trapped in in this pre-zombie world, pre-Victorian. Well, and you know, in my room without a without a view, yeah, without a view, yeah, just staring at this yellow wallpaper. Yep, it's all about that yellow wallpaper. It's all about it. Yep, Amy Bird will set her free. Yeah. Eleanor Marion was an epistolary novel, and then it became, in 1811, Sense and Sensibility. Mm-hmm. It sold out its first run. Mm-hmm, sister. That's right. So she didn't become, like, really rich, but she the was- publisher didn't believe in her and made a short run. That's right. No. 500 novels. 500, uh, <laughs> 500- Copies. Copies. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. True or false, Jane Austen wrote 500 <laughs> novels. <laughs> That's right. She was the Stephen King right. of her era. <laughs> if only. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she could just crank them out. Yep. <laughs> the R.L. Stein. <laughs> she was. She, she was Mary Shelley and all those other people as well. Jake, once again, what is the photography Goosebumps called? Say cheese and die, baby. Say cheese and die. <laughs> say cheese and die, baby. One of the, just say cheese and die. One of the, my favorite things that's and ever- And also, say cheese and die again. Oh, there's Ooh. a sequel? Yeah, there is. One of my favorite things that's ever happened on the bookening is I alluded to an R.L. Stein cover where- with a like a skeleton holding a camera, and Jake was like, "Say cheese and, and die." die. <laughs> Obviously, duh. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on, guys. It's a classic. <laughs> so these books wouldn't make her rich, but they would give her a needle pulling thread. I didn't, did I say it? Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> I'm a little behind. We still need to get those tattoos, don't yeah. we? Spear Danes. All right. Far by. Yeah. And then after Sense and Sensibility became. A mild success. She turned her next one, First Impressions, into Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. She didn't become a like world famous author at the time, but mm-hmm. she did make enough to be to pro- to help provide for her family, especially after her father died, to have some extra income coming in. Her brother would help her. In fact, he would help her get the publication rights back from a publisher that she wasn't too happy with at the time, and so she had. Some credibility as an author and some of the other tastemakers of the time got a hold of her books. And, you know, like she was known as she would have been in the same category as someone that other writers, like the writer's writers would have mm-hmm. known about. Yeah. Right. So I was thinking like Dennis Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> she was like the Dennis Johnson. Her age. <laughs> the perfect metaphor. <laughs> but she, I mean, she made it into the hands of the prince, too. And so there's a famous little story where the prince's librarian contacts her and she gets this little dialogue going back and forth about how the prince would really like if he would dedicate, if she would dedicate one of her books to him. And so mm-hmm. it was, yeah. But this was all cut short by her getting sick <laughs> and dying. <laughs> Is that funny? <laughs> I don't know why. Was that, that was... the greatest transition ever? <laughs> this was all cut short by her like, horrible death. <laughs> that she died. That, that does put a, to, to, to put a damper on your career. It does. This article in The Guardian says she did dedicate Emma to the prince. She did? Yeah. Even though she didn't want to. Yeah. So it's, according to the famously unenthusiastic. Ah, uh. To His Royal Highness the Prince Regent, this work is, by His Royal Highness's permission, most respectfully dedicated by His Royal Highness's dutiful and obedient humble servant. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that sounds... <laughs> hey, you know, it depends on how you read it. Just... You can read it very acerbically. To His Royal Highness the Prince Regent, this work is, by His Royal Highness's permission, most respectfully dedicated by His Royal Highness's dutiful and obedient humble servant. It's laid on thick enough to... Or you can... Be like, to his royal highness, the prince regent, this work is by his royal highness's p- 
permission. You know, you can't even not read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Royal Highness. Royal Highness. <laughs> repetition. Bro. You repeat Royal Highness three times and it starts to sound a little mm-hmm. edgy. Yep. So she died. Yep. <laughs> she got sick and she died. <laughs> In 1816, before she was even 40. And after she turned 42. Yeah. Pretty sure. She was 42, you're right. (laughs) Fun fact, Brandon thinks that the number 40 comes after 42. After 42. Yeah, she died because she was born in 1775. Yeah, that's right. That minus, that uh, that number minus that number leaves you with 42. You're right, Nathan. (laughs) My math is not so good. (laughs) Nobody ever said you're the scholar who's a baller of math. Of Of math, that's right. And now that, Anyways, I found a way to work in everything that I wanted to say, but in the places I wasn't expecting to say it. So there we go. There you go. Well, we'll have another episode or two to talk about Jane Austen, so we can work in more things as we need to, right? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that context, Brandon. And our patrons will thank you as you shout out their names, followed by Jake saying- What Jane Austen character there? A candy bar. Oh, okay. That best represents who they are. This gets really fun because we have so many patrons now that this actually can be a challenge. Yeah, I guess we'll make it into a context. I'll shout them out. It will be Jake's turn, Brandon's turn. You know the drill. Oh, come on. I didn't want it to be a contest. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. You don't have to shout them out. You just have to provide a candy. Uh, I'll, I'll do the candy bars. You're going to let Brandon off the hook? Yep. All right. Robert this and is Rhonda a power the move, man. He thinks he can mm, do it. I can. Jake is actually the fat one. <laughs> Robert and Rhonda, they love birds. Snickers. The Artful Anthony Dodger. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Butterfinger. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Kit Kat. You're looking at a list of candy bars over there. of course not. The Immortal Chelsea E. Put your phone down. The Immortal Chelsea E. Twix. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Milky Wonka Way. Bar. Andrew the Nestor of the Lovebirds. Andrew Nestor the Lovebirds. The Keith Master. Keith Three Master. Musketeers. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. John and Jill. Little Baby John Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Jay and Katie. We're Jane cold in love. Jeez. And also C.S. Lewis. And Blue Jill we have faces. That's right. They are. Fairy. Princess of Wonder and Happiness Mother Fairy. Beth. Princess of Wonder and Happiness Mother Beth. Console Prime. Adam. Mouse. Guys, I forgot to say, how do you become a patron? Mars. Tell me how you become a patron. Mars. Patreon.com forward slash the booking. Sign up for at least $10 a month and you'll get the shout out. You can sign up for less or more. Guess what, guys? You get to see amazing videos that we put together at each of our recording sessions. They really are fun. They are something else. Yep. I said Console Prime Adam. Mars. Jeremy the Dark Hood, Lord of Death. Jeremy the Dark. Whatchamacallit. He is a whatchamacallit. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not that guy. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith the Ladies of Justice. Mr. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith the Lady Justice. Uh, Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. DJ Sammy G. Score. Benny and Danny Tiberius. Benny and Danny Tiberius. He's in cream. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Charleston Chew. Professor and Lady Axe. Hershey's Crackle. Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan. Lavender's Blue. Lavender's Boom. Green Dylan Dylan. Fifth Avenue. There you go. Noah Constrictor. Bounty. Mary Cheap. Yep. That's right. Uh, so fast break. <laughs> Regret Maiden Chloe. Clark Bar. Six yeah. Pack Zach with Clark, me and Attack and Catherine bar. with an act for laying down the smack. Sky Bar. Never heard of that one. Anthony, who's called Night's Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Cheese. Zero. Ooh, those zero oh, bars are good. Jujitsu, Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Arrow. Rachel. Rachel. Zagnut. Zagnut. Yeah. 
Is that a candy? Yep. Apparently on the list he's reading. Leopard Tank Thomas. Leopard Tank Thomas. Bit of honey. Uh, Midnight Ninja Ellen. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Outrageous. Uh, Queen Kangetta. Queen Kangetta. Wakabar. Return of the Jedediah. Return of the Jedediah. Jayavrak and Ruin. Jayavrak and Ruin. Coffee Crisp. Timothy the Timothy the Rideretan. Eric and Kate the Camp Champ Kings who are warm and love bees. That's an amazing one, people. Mm, I love a Cadbury cream egg. Ooh, yeah. Actually, that was way too strong. I have occasionally <laughs> enjoyed and mostly been disgusted by Cadbury cream eggs. And Nathan, you have Cadbury cream egg on your face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Could that have been the perfect joke? Yeah, if you'd said something funny. <laughs> <laughs> Maddie, 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 Man, Big Hunk. No, that was funny. <laughs> Who's, wait, Big Hunk? That's not yep. <laughs> a candy bar. I thought it you is. were just talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk about Brandon that way. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Sweet Crispy Crunch. Jamie Sunshine. Bump, bump, bump. And, of course, our new friends, Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, and Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light. Tyler, the keeper of eternal Google darkness. clusters. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want the world to eat me. Because <laughs> I don't think. They'll understand. <laughs> Kit Kats were made to be broken. I just won't but nobody you. knows who I am. <laughs> All right. Totally hey. nailed that. Without looking at a list on my phone, thank you very much. Jake just knew all those random candies, people, because he is a candy savant. <laughs> Jake is a candy savant. <laughs> we'll often come and he's just listing candies, sitting in a corner, rocking back and forth, listing candies I don't to eat himself. Them, I just collect them. You are my candy savant, <laughs> and I've got me wanting you. Ooh, honey, ooh, honey, ooh. honey, honey, sugar, sugar. Bum, 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 bum. Honey, honey, mm, 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 mm. you are my candy savant, and I got you wanting me. Honey, 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 sugar. Okay, uh, patreon.com forward slash the booking. That's where you can support us. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week with more sense, maybe even some sensibility. 